X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Wednesday, June 16th. Today, back in the day on June 16th, 1940, former Oregon Governor Neil Goldschmidt was born. Goldschmidt also served as Secretary of Transportation under Jimmy Carter and Mayor of Portland from 1973 to 1979. Goldschmidt was an incredibly successful and charismatic politician known for revitalizing Portland's downtown and for helping to finance the Max Line. In 1973, he became the youngest mayor of a major American city at just 33 years old. But he also became an incredibly controversial figure when it was revealed that he sexually abused a minor during his first term as mayor. He later covered up the scandal. The abuse didn't come to light until 2004 when Nigel Jaquis published a Pulitzer Prize-winning piece exposing Goldschmidt's crimes. After leaving public office, Goldschmidt founded a powerful consulting firm that advised companies like Nike and Pacific Corps. And today, back in the day on June 16, 1976, the Soweto uprising took place. 15,000 black schooled children led a peaceful demonstration in Soweto, South Africa. They were protesting the mandatory use of Afrikaans, the language of the country's white settlers and local schools. It was also the preferred language of the apartheid government. In response to the peaceful youth-led protest, Soweto police fired upon the crowd. At least 176 people were killed. Ten days of protests and riots followed, and the massacre helped spur on years of anti-apartheid struggle. The event is now remembered as a public holiday in South Africa called Youth Day. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Brian Oster, correspondent at Street Roots, on the history and future of the Giles Lake area. And a quick programming note, the team is going to take a quick break Thursday and Friday, but we'll be back with you Monday morning. X-Ray. And first up, it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. A Portland police officer has been indicted for physically injuring a protester last summer, Corey A. Budworth has been charged with one count of fourth-degree assault, a misdemeanor. It's the first time a Portland police officer has faced charges for assaulting someone during a protest. It's only the second time in county history that an officer has been indicted for using such physical force on duty. He is accused of hitting photographer and activist Terry Jacobs from behind with his baton at a protest on August 18, 2020. Several videos on social media show the incident. In those videos, Jacobs is seen with her hands hands over her head and moving away from officers when Budworth hits her from behind. He then hits her again when she's already down on the ground. Jacobs identified as a photojournalist and was wearing press credentials at the time. Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt has said, quote, We allege that no legal justification existed for Officer Budworth's deployment of force and that the deployment of force was legally excessive under the circumstances. Budworth was put on paid administrative leave yesterday. The city settled a civil lawsuit with Jacobs in February for $50,000 and $11,000 in legal fees. The arraignment date is yet to be set. And now your daily dose of data. We're now up to 68% of eligible Oregon residents who have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. 
Remember, once we get to 70% statewide, COVID restrictions get lifted. Washington, Hood River, Benton, and Multnomah counties are all over 70%. Lake County in Southern Oregon has the farthest to go, with only 34.4% of the eligible population getting a dose. Oregon's unemployment rate is back down to where it was before the pandemic. For the first time since March of 2020, the unemployment rate is down below 6%, according to the Oregon Employment Department. At 5.9%, that's about on the same track as the overall national rate, which is at 5.8%. So far, the state has recovered about 176,500 of the jobs lost between February and April of 2020, or about 62%. There's still about 109,000 less jobs than there were back in February of 2020. The reopening of bars and restaurants has played a large role in this comeback. By far the biggest increase last month, though, came in the private education sector. Those made up about half of the 6,900 jobs that were added in May. The only major industry that lost jobs over that span was the transportation, warehousing, and utilities sector. They reported being down about 800 positions. A bill allowing over-the-counter HIV prevention drugs passed in the Oregon House on Monday. House Bill 2958B allows pharmacists to prescribe, dispense, and administer PrEP and PEP, two drugs that prevent HIV infection. PrEP is given as a preventative measure or pre-exposure prophylaxis, and PEP is for post-exposure prophylaxis. The bill also clears up that pharmacists are legally allowed to perform HIV tests. Recently, Lawmakers have expressed concern over the potential rise in HIV diagnoses, citing trends in injection drug use. HIV stigma, homophobia, transphobia, plus lack of access create equity gaps in HIV prevention, testing, and treatment. One of the bill's co-sponsors, Representative Karen Power, says that, quote, HB 2958 will help to distribute these life-saving drugs more broadly so we can begin to close these gaps in our healthcare system and ensure that more people are protected. TriMet laid out plans to reduce carbon emissions by 25% on Monday. To do so, they've made the switch from standard electricity to renewable electricity. Standard electricity uses fossil fuels to heat the turbines that produce the electricity. Renewable electricity, on the other hand, uses solar panels and wind turbines. The transition happened at the beginning of this month. That means all TriMet trains, electric buses, and TriMet-owned facilities are now using renewable electricity. According to the agency, that change will reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by more than 54 million pounds per year. That's the same as pulling 5,300 cars off the road. TriMet is already in the process of transitioning to a zero-carbon emissions bus fleet by 2040. And finally, some good news. Chuckanut Brewery will be opening a German-style beer hall in southeast Portland. The Bellingham, Washington-based brewery applied for a liquor license and plans to open a Portland location in the fall. Chuckanut's been around as a brewery since 2008. In 2009, the first year they competed at the Great American Beer Festival, they took home four medals. Known for their German-style beers, they've had brewers go on to find success elsewhere also, including Hood River's Freem Family Brewers and Southeast Wayfinder Beer. The Southeast Spot would be the third location for the brewery and the first Oregon location. They've also got the brewery in Bellingham 
and a brew pub in Burlington. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up, we have an interview with Brian Oster, correspondent at Street Roots, on the history and future of the Giles Lake area, also known as the Northwest Industrial Area. Today, we'll talk about the more recent history of the Guilds Lake area, its contamination, and how community members are reckoning with the area's history. Here to tell us more is Senior Correspondent for Street Roots, Brian Oster. Brian, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Excited to dive into this article that you've shared. Let's let's start at the beginning. What was this area like before it became Portland's Northwest Industrial District? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, it's been through a lot of incarnations, and originally it was a wetland. Um, some people call it a lake or a series of lakes, um, but it was really a, it was a wetland ecosystem that was you know rich in complexity and diversity of fish and waterfowl, and it supplied the native Chinook and Kalapuyan communities with. Um, foodways like Wapato and Camas. So it was a really busy place before um, before European settlers came in. Mm. And so it's it's almost hard to imagine that area as a wetland. How how did the wetlands become an industrial area and what were some of the consequences? Well, it was a it's a long and strange journey to becoming the Northwest Industrial District, but essentially what happened is they filled in the lake. Mm. They, they dredged up the river to create a federal shipping channel, and they took all that silt that they dredged up, and they just dumped it into the lake along with a bunch of trash because there was a, there was a garbage incinerator built up there um, on the north end of the lake for a long time, and then another garbage incinerator because the original one was too small mm. um, to, to bear the you know, garbage load of the whole city. And it, even still, you know, you can still go up there and see that it's where our trash goes and Metro, you know, sorts it and, and sends it away. Um, so that whole, you know, that whole area, the Northwest Industrial District, it looks flat because there's actually a lake underneath it and it's just full of garbage and silt. Mm, wow. You know, this this industrial district, in your, your article, you talk about the history of displacing people as it developed. Do you see any similarities between its history and the history of the Albina District? I do, yeah. Um, I think the Albina District's history of racial injustice is slightly more well-known amongst Portlanders. Um, That's just my impression. But a very similar thing has happened in Northwest Industrial because it used to be home to a lot of African-American workers, um, especially during and after World War II. Um, A lot of the um, working class families that moved into Portland, and especially African-American ones, they were living in um, public housing. You know, like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Vanport um, is a very famous one, but also there was Giles Lake Court, um, which uh, preceded Vanport, actually. It It was first. And, uh, you know, these, they had these public housing um, courts and, and other amenities for the workers as well, um, which, you know, are like clinics and childcare facilities and things like that. All that's just been erased from the Northwest Industrial District now. So looking around that area, 
you know, um, what the folks at Braided River Campaign were pointing out to me was like, look, this was all somebody's land. You know, this was all somebody's hunting and fishing grounds, or this was somebody's farm, um, or or there were you know working class families living here, and um, you know some of that displacement has come from industrial tycoons, but a lot of it has come from the port of Portland, actually. Mm. Wow, and and how are I mean you just mentioned Vanport. How are Gilds Lake Gilds Lake Courts and Vanport related? Well, what happened was um, when Vanport flooded, a lot of the families that fled um, their homes in Vanport they actually went to Gilds Lake Court. It, it was a similar situation, you know. They were similar communities, and. Um, so there's, you know, there are a lot of parallels there and that and that kind of upset, you know, some of the um, wealthy uh, industry leaders, you know, they didn't want they didn't want all of these working class people or or they didn't want public housing or, or whatever it was. They didn't like what was happening. So they they just tried to get rid of public housing altogether. Mm. Um, but I mean, the major differences between Giles Lake Court and Vanport that I that I'm aware of, you know, just in my research is that um, Vanport was bigger and Vanport flooded. But other than that, they're, you know, they were Mm -hmm. functionally similar and demographically similar. Mm. This is Emily, and I'm speaking with Brian Oster about the history and, and future of Portland's Northwest Industrial District. So, Brian, you you started with the the difficult picture of, you know, trash and how how the uh, the natural environment was was filled in and transformed. What are some of the obstacles to the waterfront's restoration and conservation? Well, right now there are political obstacles. Um, the the two main things that I came across are, you know, the the city is kind of telling me, yeah, you know, we want to clean up the riverfront too. We want this to be, you know, this, this beautiful vision with parkways and things, but who's going to pay for that? So of course, the, you know, there's the financial obstacle. Not that, not that it shouldn't be paid for, but that there needs to be a mechanism in place, you know, a way for the city to get the money to do the harbor cleanup, to do the restoration and to, and to convert the, you know, what people are calling a sacrifice zone into something that is a little bit more um, humanitarian and ecologically forward. So the finance is one thing. The other thing is um, every five years or so, Portland undergoes something called an economic opportunity analysis or an EOA. Now, the EOA is just when the city of Portland takes a look at available land and says, okay, this is how much available land we have and this is how much we're growing. Do we have enough land to support our projected growth for the coming years. Mm. So it's really, that's all it is. It's very, you know, in concept, it's very simple. They're just looking at like, can we support uh, the growth that Portland is, is undergoing? But the document that is produced from this, the economic opportunity analysis, becomes a really key background document in future efforts at um, development and environmental restoration. Because what happens, this is a state document. So the state of Oregon requires this document from the city of Portland every five years or so. What's happened in the past is that efforts 
to clean up the Northwest Industrial District, arduous efforts, in fact, um, have been blocked by industry leaders who go, they, you know, the city of Portland will adopt, has adopted plans to clean up the Northwest Industrial District. Industrial leaders who want to maintain the status quo, they have the ability to go around the city and go to the state instead and say, no, 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 the city can't do this. The city can't clean this up because it doesn't fit within the existing economic opportunity analysis. And they say, we don't want to lose industrial land. Um, this, you know, if you put a greenway through there, for example, you're going to lose industrial land and that, and that um, doesn't fit with the EOA. So they can veto it. And that's what's happened in the past. So right now, there's a new economic opportunity analysis. Like I said, it's every five years or so. There's one happening now. And Braided River Campaign and other you know, area activists are trying to get involved in that process so that it's not sitting there in the background empowering industry leaders and sabotaging environmental efforts the way that the previous economic opportunity analyses have been doing. Mm. Interesting. And what kind of future do community members envision for the waterfront area? What they told me is they're calling it a green working waterfront. Mm. And they are very clear that they want it to be a job creating neighborhood. Um, that's kind of, that's another kind of excuse that industry leaders a lot of the times will use, you know, they'll say like, oh, well, um, we can't change anything because you know, you can't take away jobs. We need the jobs. It's all about jobs. And they sort of make this dichotomy of jobs versus environmental progress. So what community leaders now, like the Braided River campaign, are saying is like, no, 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 that's not a real dichotomy. We can have jobs and progress. We can have salmon habitat and clean jobs that, you know, are more consistent with Portland's um, you know, vision of itself for its future. You know, we don't necessarily need to have all these tank farms and and pipelines and, uh, you know, sort of toxic, combustible things in this neighborhood. We can have working class jobs, working class amenities, and it can all be green and environmentally sustainable. And we can have um, public access to the river for fishing and recreation. Um, in a way that we don't have it now. So they have this kind of comprehensive vision um, of a more people-friendly waterfront. But Braided River Campaign was very clear with me that they want to keep it working class. They don't want it to be the south waterfront, you know, where millionaires live. And they want to keep it a working waterfront. They want to keep jobs and, and in fact, you know, ideally make more jobs even than um, are available in that district now. Mm. And is the Braided River campaign seeing support from the city and state on that vision? They actually are. The state, I'm not sure, but the yeah. city, the city is supportive at least in theory. They're saying that they're supportive, mm -hmm. um, and city leaders have been meeting with the Braided River campaign uh, every month since September. So they're they're definitely they've definitely got the ear of the city. And Braided River Campaign has grown considerably over the last year from basically a, you know, a one-woman march to a, a coalition of environmental groups and activists who are 
lobbying the city, you know, to um, to make these updates uh, and to aim for a green working waterfront. And if that's not consistent with zoning regulations, then to change the zoning regulations. It seems like the city is listening, but like I said, what the city told me is there's this major obstacle that's financing, mm-hmm. and the you know I didn't really get a clear impression that there's uh, that they see a way around that yet. So you know it remains to be seen whether they actually come through. But they're they're certainly saying yeah yeah that sounds great. Interesting. Well, you've laid out the the uh, levers of power to create change so so beautifully. There's the city, the state, there's this Braided River campaign that's emerging as a, sounds like a grassroots effort to to engage community members and and uh, be the interplay between some of those powerful forces like the city and state. Uh, where can our listeners find out more and how they can get involved? Um, well, the full article is the cover story of this week's Street Roots. And if they want to get involved more, actually, a great thing to do would be to contact Braided River um, and just ask them for a tour, because that's what they do. And Sarah Taylor, who runs the tours, is just a wealth of information. Um, let's see, their website is BraidedRiverCampaignPDX.org. Fantastic. Brian, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thanks for having me. I was Brian Oster, Senior Correspondent for Street Roots. You can read his feature and more by getting this week's edition from your local Street Roots vendor. Thanks to Brian for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, democracy. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we'll be taking a two-day break, a long weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday. We'll talk to you then. X-Ray.